Your name is Stryker? Yes, it is. That's fire. <laughs> wow. I love sandwiches. It's called tuna on toast. I, I, I spit. I don't know what I'm doing. I love music and I love those that create it. Stryker's here. Tuna on toast. Yes. Tuna on toast. Yeah. What's going on? Welcome to another episode of Tuna on Toast. It is Stryker here. And holy moly, today's episode is really good featuring Gavin Rossdale, who has been famous since like 1994. He reveals some things in our chat that he says, I've never talked about this before. I've actually known him for a very long time. We're not friends or anything. I haven't played tennis with him. We haven't gone golfing. I don't know if he golfs, but um, I really like Gavin. And this was an interesting chat. We did this one on Zoom. When we were about 80% of the way through, there was a storm going on in Los Angeles. My power shut out completely. My ears got electrocuted uh, through my headphones. So I guess my whole body did. And the guy was so patient, he waited until my power came back on, which luckily was, I don't know, like nine minutes later. So the Zoom turned back on and Gavin was still sitting right there with the guitar in his hand. And if you did not know, last year, Bush released their ninth studio album, which is called The Art of Survival. And it really, it's heavier than maybe you're expecting. It's great. A song that I love on there is called More Than Machines. Again, their ninth album. Think about that first album, their debut album, way back in 1994 called 16 Stone. This band had songs. Come down everything zen, glycerin, machine head, little things, just one after another. And this band, who maybe they had one offer for a deal back then, or 50 record deal offers. Gavin tells you the story on that. Um, before we get to Gavin, I've been very inspired lately by two human beings who don't know who the hell I am, but I know who they are. Mark Marin and Dak Shepard. I've been listening to their podcasts a lot the last six months, and they're not only really, really good at what they do, but they're consistent and they're always prepared. Every, that's, that's my goal. And I know my bubble is like 10,000 times smaller than them. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe this will get to them that I, I just think they're both the bees knees in different ways and they're really good. And to me, it doesn't even matter at this point who their guest is. I'm like, yep, you got me for the next hour and 12 minutes. Here we go. Let's go, Mark Marin, WTF. Come on, Dexter. Let's do this. Hey, you can find me. I'm on social media. Maybe you're new to this podcast, Ted Stryker. Also, a majority of my episodes are on YouTube on my channel, Tune on Toast with Stryker. Tom DeLong, Tom Morello, Fat Mike, Brett Gerwitz, Paris Jackson, Mike Shinoda, the list. We've had a lot of good, uh, Davey Havoc has been on here. We've had a lot, a lot of great episodes, and my goal is to be more consistent. But if you don't know, I do a, a four-hour radio show every single day, which takes up a lot of time with my partner, Booker, Booker and Stryker. Um, I also do a syndicated countdown show, which takes up a little bit of time. All fun stuff, by the way. The most fun career anybody could ask for. Uh, so let's get to this episode. Without any further ado, please welcome to Tuna on Toast, Gavin Rossdale. Gavin, how are you? 
I'm all right. How are you doing? Wait, hold on yep. one sec. Let me just make sure our levels are good before we do this. Hold on. Do you mind just giving me like a quick 10 count how you normally talk? Uh, tuna on toast with Ted Stryker at your cervix. How's that? Recording in progress. Gavin. Now I can give you the proper hello. Okay. How was the show at the Palladium a couple nights ago? It was great. I mean, I love that venue. Some people, I've heard complaints about it. Maybe within my band, someone was like, oh, I love that venue. I think it looks beautiful. It's a real nice, inclusive thing. It was packed wherever you could look and see. And I I, I said it on stage. I don't know if I got it right because I'm pretty ad-lib, but, but it was, it didn't escape me that. Um, I always heard stories about how Guns N' Roses played there just before they became a stadium band, they're sort of playing a show there. And I know a friend of mine, a guy we worked with at Live Nation, went to see them, was like, this, they should be playing stadiums, and boom. So I'm trying to see it as some positive spiritual precursor to our future life playing stadiums, but I don't know if I'm overreaching, <laughs> probably. Like. Also, some of the best and my most favorite bands that are from L.A., it was always a goal for those bands to go from, like, the Roxy to end up the at the Palladium like a band like Jane's Addiction or something. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's a great venue. And uh, actually, it worked out really great. You know, we had a really good time. And, uh, you know, for some reason, our agent booked a hometown show day two of the tour. And so that's like... And then someone else, Veeps, recorded it. Uh, we're like, oh, man. You know, we had lots of new songs. Kind of lots of... So many um, points of pressure... There was sort of a Venn diagram of pressure, you know what I mean? It was pretty intense. But I found that day after, my a lot of my anxiety had washed away. I had an anxiety for like two or three months about that show. Between the set list, production, the guest list, uh, leaving town, it's always, I don't like that because I have to leave town for like five weeks now. So I always feel like a deadbeat dad. I'm reminded I'm a working dad, but I feel like a deadbeat when I'm like having to leave town and, forfeit flag football games and baseball tournaments and stuff like that where my driving skills are required you know and uh, my feeding skills are required so i feel so it's a lot of a myriad of emotions but it was a great response from the from the people there so we love that that's great and something you just said what a dumbbell i am because i never think about that kind of stuff too much when you are a dad or a mom and you are working it's your job and the kids are at an age where, yeah, there's flag football or basketball, or maybe they have music lessons, whatever it is. You're going to be in Illinois or you're going to be in some town in Iowa and you're not going to be there. Is that like a sit down talk you have with the kids before you go? How does that work? Yeah, um, I had one with my um, I had a beautiful morning yesterday because, you know, I played the show on Sunday night. And then I said to my kids that I would, um, they could go in school late, like how about 11, 11, 15, like a reasonable time to go to school. A reasonable time as opposed to the kind of like the mad early morning so we had a beautiful morning where it's slow and just eating breakfast and just hanging out and playing video games together and i was like trying to explain the concept of sacrifice to my eight-year-old son i was like i don't want to leave but there are things that we do in life that um require sacrifice and uh I love playing the shows. It's the waiting around that is obviously really taxing. So those kind of life lessons and, and my 16-year-old is just annoyed at me that I was leaving because he views being here, I think, with a great, uh, gives it a great freedom. You know, they, they love being in both houses. Of course you want that. But um, there's a degree of freedom that they have, have here that I think they appreciate. So when that freedom is taken away for an extended period, they're like, what's up with that? I'm like, what's up with StockX? 
keeps the stuff keeps driving. (laughs) The shoe place, StockX, yes. (laughs) Let me know when you don't want to consult StockX every time you want to sort out your look. Because damn, they that's a bait and switch site. It's a great site, but it says shoes, you know, a reasonable still, but a reasonable 140 bucks for a pair of shoes. Okay, that's all right, because you're 14 years old. Oh, then it comes back. They, oh, the actual size you want, it just goes up to, you know, like, so it's a very tricky thing. But um, uh, so that's, uh, I've always found that kind of um, contradiction in my life, you know, um, of an incredible life. But there are the sort of no, no free lunches. So it's just sort of part of it. And I, I don't moan about it publicly. I just moan about it, um, you know, in my side, my heart. I just feel a bit. You know, it's taxing but i think that's for everyone it leaves and has responsibilities you know totally. jerry Krell, who played with us the other day is a lovely friend of ours and we had a great time this summer with alice and chains he he's smart he kind of moves a bit freer he doesn't have those kind of um uh responsibilities which is cool you know he has a different kind of life and then i, I for some reason i signed up to like my 16 year old just was like but dad you're not going to drive us everywhere and do all these things come on you gotta it's gotta be pretty good and i was like yeah but i don't know how good it feels you know, so <laughs> this is always that you know what i mean yeah it's just like the human the human thing is, is how's your life how are you doing thank you for asking uh my quick answer because this is all about you is i'm doing very well i found out though that the pandemic affected me 20 times more than i actually thought while right. it was happening i thought oh boy am i good but i wasn't good and i've been working on that to get back to getting the what, spring what, back in my step how will you articulate what, what what in what way didn't it work what way did it affect you i was more depressed than i thought i never exercised i ate like crap every single day i let things happening around me professionally affect me 20 times more than they would actually affect me in the normal time i don't think i was a great partner during that time i had the person i care about the most eight feet from me and instead of just really giving her so much attention, she's right there. I'm like watching TV and again, not eating good. It just wasn't wasn't good. But now I feel like I've got the eye of the tiger again in the spring in my step and I changed jobs. I left the other one purposely where I was for all those years. And now right. my new job and I the syndicated show. So, well, what a long answer. Sorry for that. Uh, no, 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 no. It's beautiful. I mean, what I find amazing is that so many interviews that I do I've said, and I try not to repeat myself, but certain things kind of just hold true no matter what, in that I've spoken so often about how you could just sit and ask anyone on the bus, um, at a you know a bar, any any place you're choosing, and, and you hear an interesting story. Like so to hear your story is, is I find fascinating. And like I think it's really it's the measure of 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 the cost of what we've all been through that everyone does have this story. I mean, I'm so pleased that you didn't reference too much um, kind of, you know, losing people, uh, but you still lost elements of yourself, you know? And I think that's that art of survival record. That's what it really was about that. Everybody had all these different experiences. And and what I found that sharing with you um, was that I hadn't realized at the time I thought that I had come out unscathed. And I was not unscathed. I was most definitely scathed. And um, so it's exactly what you're saying. It's an incredible thing that I, it's, it, it's great for me to do an interview and not be talking about myself uh, in, in that to, 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 to kind of reference the shared experience that we all went through something really that we weren't prepared for. <laughs> and it really took us by, you know, side, you know, sucker punched. And 
I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you, for you, that you know, come through that and have your life uh, uh, back on track where it should be. That's a beautiful thing. It's a great, that is a very Buddhist thing of it not being, of it being a lesson, you know? Absolutely. The sound of the album, your ninth album, it is aggressive. Is that a result of the emotions that you needed to let out? Or for the last 10 years, you're like, I'm going to make something a tad harder than I've been normally doing. Um, I, I think that for me personally, after I went through a pretty traumatic situation in my personal life, you mm -hmm. know, getting divorced, uh, and, and the ramifications of that, you know, I made an incredibly bruised record. And then once I kind of picked myself up on the floor, as you have to, as you have done yourself, and as you just have to just forge forwards, uh, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to be beaten, vulnerable, but I'm going to come out strong. And even though I have points of reference of complaints or, or sort of, um, songs of awakening and of um that kind of notion uh i want it to be hard i just want it to be strong and uh i think that uh you know it'd be if someone in, in our position of, of of years of success of years of, of, of that life uh you'd be forgiven for coming out with something a bit more mellow acoustic driven and sort of pensive and thoughtful i was just like fuck that just like come out swinging and be strong and be sort of and i you know i i, I love all the detuned songs of our of our records through the years and i was just like why am i kind of thinking why not just do the whole thing like that and it was really sort of throwing caution to the wind and just being like well if rock is dead and if we don't matter and you know there's new great bands to make take people's attentions as they should the natural order of life just do something completely antithetical to what you should and be surprise yourself. How about surprising yourself, having a real good time, enjoying the band, and that's what we did. And and since um, the kingdom, and in in some ways, on that record I'm referencing, we had a song called "This Is War." There was a song before that on the previous record, "Black White Rainbows." Uh, this is war. It kind of lent into this kind of new possibility for the band, and uh, I just carried it on. And then, you know, um, everything I've responded to, whether it's music from other people to write to um, or, or just songs I wrote myself, it's all going through that kind of like meter of, of just keep it heavy and keep it fun um, and just get lost in it. And uh, that's the, what we showcased the other night. And it was, it was an incredible sort of almost an epiphany. I don't know, Bush 7.0 or something. I don't know what you'd call it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's just ways to keep to keep fresh and keep interesting to ourselves to myself and uh people seem to respond to it because i still sing the same way i still try and go for the melodies i still believe in soaring vocals and stuff like that i do like that but um as you can tell the the music just maintained a kind of a harder riffier edge bit yes. kind of darker so how important is it to you because i've had a lot of guests on my show some started their career in the mid nineties, some in the early two thousands, people have sold a lot of records. And I've had a couple artists say that they want to continue to play shows for the next 20 years. They love it, but it's not that important to them to go make nine, 10 new songs every couple of years. Why is it important to you to get in there and put these suckers out? Because it just came, you know, you have to sort of have a personal sense of, of growth and progress. I mean, you know, for me, like as stupid as it sounds, just trying to push forward to keep it interesting. I mean, if I was to to just play songs that I'd written uh, 20, 20 years ago only, 
yeah. I would feel um, a sort of sense of self-betrayal to my own progress, mm. <laughs> to my own progress. And as an artist, along with the, you know, I've had mixed things. I've had great success. I've had no success. I've had massive tours. I've had less big tours. I've sort of experienced all of it and all in no particular order. It's sort of been a way of show business. That's how it goes. You know, we're on a good run right now, and sold out shows and, yeah. and all that stuff. But if you, you have to sort of satisfy the muse within. For me personally, you know, I'm just about to finish um, Bono's book. It's, and it's like a really long, long week with Bono because it's quite a long book. It's like five and a, 547 Jesus pages. Jesus Christ. So wow. 30 pages left. And he referenced, I'm just talk, referencing a bit where he talks about uh, the friendship in his band. And uh, it's something that I was always really inspired by with him, particularly with you two. And having been around them and seen that and, and how he was saying how it seemed that a lot of bands he'd heard about only kind of meet up to go on tour and meet up to make money. And there's quite a sort of cynical side to it. And um, one thing that I really am the proudest possibly about our band is that we get along great. You know, we have our differences and we have our frustrations like any family. But there's nothing cynical about getting together. So the idea of new songs i just got some music from Corey, the bass player that's fantastic and i was i've got it right on on one you know his music so that he's incorporated in the creativity from the get-go i've done it with chris with with stuff he's given me because i think that provides an inclusivity that you, is essential so i think that the new music is just sort of the excitement of what you can make together and where you're going and so you know i've reached a point in my life where it's not about i can't judge someone else for not doing that, as you say, people on your show are like, God damn, you know, but um, they, they're they happy with where they're at, but this is not, it doesn't work for me personally. It hasn't brought me riches, doesn't mean I'm not playing giant stadium tonight, you know, I'm playing Anaheim, <laughs> you know, so it's, a it's not like great venue though, it's a great, great good size venue you're playing. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean, so I, I'm, I'm fully aware that there are far more successful people than me who, who follow the route, they're like, you know I me, mean? if ain't broke, like just play those other songs because people don't want these new. So there's a sense of a kind of a, 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 a daredevil sense to it because people maybe don't wanna, don't always want that. But somehow I think that the balance of it, um, if you don't lose the the structure of the old songs or, or the, you know to play a bunch of old songs, a bunch of new songs, and you try and find the balance. Maybe there's no right or wrong, but it's just a way you have to follow. Nirvana's Nevermind was 91, Bad Motor Finger, Soundgarden, 91, Dirt, Ellis and Chains, I think 93-ish. Were those bands to you inspiration or was it, wow, look at those dudes doing that. I can do that. How, how did those guys affect you, if at all? Oh, my God. Well, interesting question. I mean, first off, those, you know, incredible bands. Uh, I was just like everyone else. I was just a kid blown away by them. I was just a person going, I don't know if I should stop playing music now because it seems like they've, they've completed it <laughs> or whether I should try and play catch up in my own way. And what people don't realize um, about Bush at that time, that embryonic time, was that in being inspired by those bands, and clearly was it, I was inspired by that. I was inspired by the Sex Pistols, by Public Image, by The Fall, by the Pixies, mm. and then with the new, new, you know, Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger, just that sort of Jesus Christ pose. I was like, yeah. "What even is this? You know, <laughs> what is this?" And I remember playing those albums in my uh, f uh, 
flat in, in, in London trying to sort of get my band together. And I just got great inspiration from them and just felt that what, what it was was that um, there'd been, you know, the, the biggest rock movement before that Seattle drop and Alice in Chains, Man in the Box, and that, we'd had Guns N' Roses who equally, I mean, when, when that Sweet Child of Mine came out and I saw <sighs> this like mythical figure of Axel performing and sashaying yeah. and, and stuff. I was like, not only was it, um, it was an incredible record, you know, that Appetite, Appetite for Destruction or whatever, it was just, was an incredible rock record. But it, I felt removed from it because of the way he sang. It was like, it was way out of reach to me physically. I mm. hadn't figured out how to sing like that. And so it was physically out of reach. And, and, I, and there was a disconnect. So I love punk. I love television. I liked, do you know, the whole punk thing, post-punk. And those rock bands, because they all sang like that high, in that high range, I felt divorced from it. There was no connection to it. Mm. And it was only when I heard all those bands um, from Soul Asylum, Tad, uh, Screaming Trees, oh, all those Seattle that sound, that I was like, hang on. So you can make rock music and I can, I can, this stuff is, I can, I can sing this stuff, this stuff I can sing. So it, it provided a, a, a sort of, um, a, like a guiding light to a, to a party I could get to, to a country I had a passport to. Whereas those other bands were just sort of, wow, well, I couldn't then sort of poison all that Sunset Strip. Yeah. That was never, <clears throat> didn't, I didn't connect to it. It wasn't punky to me. It was like, okay, now I, rock music and me are like this but when those bands came along or when i heard those bands i was like oh this is just punk reimagined this is just punk music reimagined so that's why i had that connection to it and, and it's i've never said this before um so it's a it's a uh, um you know it's a revelation here but it's um because i'm realizing it myself but that's what it was you know that's how it worked for me and then you know when you're in a band you you the, your inspirations you just it's a big melting pot i mean there was much sound garden in, in, you know, or Alice in Change in terms of music as there was Bob Marley, you know, as there was Public Image. They just, as a kid, you're just, you're just drinking all these bands and just hoping that you can spit out something interesting. That's all it is. Right. And some bands get more input in your sort of inspirational pot than others. I mean, you too, Matt, you know, uh, that was a massive influence because of the way that he sang his melodies, the lyrics, the kind of mysticism, the uh, ups, up, uh, uplifting quality to it. So whilst I had a big influence from American bands, there's an Irish band right. that was way, I mean, lyrically and melodically, no, no one as important to, to me as Bono was in my formation of, okay, how do I put one line after the other? Right. That's like... That's knowing the Joshua tree backwards. That's like knowing Boy or, or the Unforgettable Fire. The Unforgettable Fire and the Joshua Tree were the big records for me. So when you became part of Trauma Records, and by the way, I liked Funk Chunkies. I just want to throw that out there. They're on Trauma Records. I also liked The Flies very much. I was I went to see them play a couple times. But how did you know your your business sense that that was the right place for you guys and were there a million offers flying in everywhere because this is the genius of life um is that if you only get one offer you have to take it <laughs> no are you serious mm -hmm. so paul palmer and uh, rob kane wait right mm -hmm. 
What really? Yeah, that's Where how people it goes. Pass? I mean, that's how. I mean, that's that's life. Life works like that. You know, I love the the dream idea that we were fighting people off, but not at all. We were uh, fighting um, sort of inertia. In, in in England at the time, I could get demo time from any label. So what I does knew that mean exactly? That. What what does that mean? Yeah. So that means when you're an unsigned regular. Um, kind of band person the being signed is like, like obviously the holy grail when you when you're unsigned and just struggling you don't even think about being a superstar at that time nowadays of course you think immediately about lambos and private jets you know there's nothing in between it's like you know there's like chick-fil-a and then there's like you know private jets with yeah. chick-fil-a on that right. <laughs> nothing, nothing in between and uh so Demo time would be when a an AR guy, let's take uh, Clive Black from EMI, um, and uh, you'd say, Clive, I want to do some demos. He'd give you 500 quid to go to a, a studio for three days. You'd, you'd be at the studio from 10 in the morning till four in the morning for mm. three nights running. You'd think the song sounded great the last night at midnight, and you'd continue tinkering. You wake up at 11 a.m., put in your cassette into the stereo and be like oh my god it sounds shit oh. what the fuck happened this was so good at midnight <laughs> so demo time is about recording three songs to prove to that said label that you had promised but what you were really doing is i knew that they weren't ever going to sign me so i would just be amassing demos i'd be get my demos together so by the time i met rob Kane, and he came to a studio in uh, in north london um we were um yeah, we were like demo, like demo, like little things and come down and swim and all the records that made the the album. And uh, he just offered us a deal, signed us on a deal, and uh, that was it. So it makes it really easy to make a decision when there's only there is not an option. I can't believe that there weren't other options. No, the truth is nobody knows anything. Everybody's an idiot. I mean, seriously, the first second I heard you guys, I was living in Tucson, Arizona. I said, I love these guys. I don't know what they look like. I have no idea where they're from, but I like this. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's how it goes. And uh, they say success has many fathers and, you know, and no one signing you and no one believing in you had had, had the most fathers in our world, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And that's just how it is. I mean, I think Lady Gaga said it when she got that the role in that um, movie with uh, what's his with face, Bradley um, Cooper, A Star Is Born. It was an excellent movie, Great and movie. she just takes one person to uh, one be to believe in you, and that's right. that's really all it is. And sometimes more special it is, and clearly in her case, she's extremely special. But you just need that. There's people, and nowadays it's even worse because people are so terrified to take chances on people. And the chance to take on someone is a chance on their them and their lives. And you know, the most successful A and R people are the ones who make no decisions and they just sort of like move up up the ladder because they haven't wasted the corporate money. And mm. the ones who get to the top are the ones who kind of take the least risks. And risk is not something that people like. So yeah, that's how it goes. I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm kind of proud of that, you know. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, it was a fantastic story. Were you ready you know? emotionally for the success? that was coming your way in 94, 95, 96, and of course until now, but those first 24 months, were you ready? I mean, I w it, was, it was shocking, but it was a lot harder um, going back to work and painting houses and working on building sites, knowing that 
or feeling that we had songs. This is after I called, recorded 16 Stone. So it's like, that was much more demoralizing, was kind of living with a kind of concept that um, whatever I devoted my life to at that point in my 20 odd years had come to nothing. You know, that was much harder to stomach. So it was more like when I got there and not in an arrogant way, because I've never, I never got way arrogant. I don't think, I hope not too much. I mean, maybe people would disagree, but um, it just sort of felt more like just to be in the, in the world of, of, of being facilitated this life, like going on tour, having a manager, having an agent, uh, playing shows, playing, that felt like, okay, but now we're, we are where we're meant to be. You know, it was way more taxing to be just driving to the rehearsal room going, please, someone believe in us, please, someone take us, please, someone, you know, like that, that kind of thing. Seeing these like A&R men out at, at clubs um, and thinking, oh my God, there's literally the key, here's the keys to the kingdom that I want to be in, you know, here's the keys. And uh, they're not giving it to me, you know, and so that was hard. So it was ex exciting and thrilling and um, I loved every minute of it, you know. Um, I think as a band, you and your band, with all the millions that you've sold, and yes, different lineups as the years have gone, but we love your band. But I also think there are some people out there that don't understand what a great front man you are, almost underrated as a front man. And I think a lot of people saw that Woodstock Fest uh, doc and saw you right. on stage as the guy that I know you are when I first saw you did you watch that doc and see yourself at that time and be like i'm all right i'm not bad because it's great <laughs> well man. to be honest i watched that first the first thing of it and I, I it's sort of quite sweet and quite endearing how i completely got the wrong end of the stick and and uh the the organizer of the festival was like well the only person that seemed to sort of hog back to the original concept of the peace and love and connectivity was gavin who tried to really calm the crowd and i saw i was like <laughs> How embarrassing, you know, I just got it wrong. But I was just so obsessed with that DVD that I watched so many times for the original Woodstock that I just thought it was, I kept on thinking of Hendrix and Joplin and thinking, oh my mm. God, we're in this rarefied company. We've got to um, honor what they began and what the intention of this festival was. And so I I didn't get the memo. And um, so I just went for something different. But yeah, thank you for saying that. I mean, I do feel, I, I think everyone has a sense of this, um, of being slightly underrated because, you know, we all kind of try to see the best in ourselves. And, and, and sometimes that, you know, I don't feel on the inside. I don't feel, uh, you know, there's the sort of the Clive Davis and the Grammy world and the, that, that thing and the accolades. And we've never been part of that. We've never been seduced by it because we've never been really part of it. And so... That's kind of almost kept us lean and mean on the yeah. on, on the on the peripheries of success. We've always we've maintained, but we've never been a fated band. I don't think we'd ever consider ourselves, you know, fated in in the in the grand scheme of things. But that's um, I think that uh, on reflection, that's a really sort of um, that's a healthy place to be because you're never overly seduced. You never overly right. sort of succumbed to things like that. You always, I feel I'm, I'm forever in the UFC octagon of music. You know, I'm forever in that. I'm as good as my last song. I'm as good as my last single. Um, I don't have the, I'm not afforded the luxuries of, of failing, of falling off because that's just the way it goes. Um, that's the, 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 the position that we have. And, uh, 
I don't mind it because as I say, it keeps me lean and mean and hungry and, and working. And maybe that goes back to what you're saying about the songs and why you keep making things. And, you know, I do it because I don't feel that we, we are where we, we, we should be. But it's a very, it's a weird, interesting conundrum because I don't think we'll ever get to where we think we should be because we always have sort of not necessarily all both feet on the ground ideas of where we should be. You know, I write songs think, oh man, this, I want to change the world with a song. Well, no one's going to hear that song. So it's just already a ludicrous, exaggerated concept. But you you have to reach for things or else, what? Reach below? Right. <laughs> what is that? Right. It's a very healthy and unhealthy way to live because I'm similar to you in the fact that I should be appreciating that I have been so lucky and my bubble is 99% a million times smaller than yours that I get to be on the radio in LA for 25 years and the podcast and a syndicated show every TV. But I'm like, I haven't even reached my peak yet. I have to work so hard to keep to make sure people can still pay attention to me a little bit. But if I didn't, think that I wouldn't put in the effort, but I also want to be able to appreciate what I've done. Does that make any sense? It's perfect sense. That's just life. You're, you're in that sort of in the, on, the, on the wheel of life. And um, I think that it's a, a great thing because if you imagine if this world was only, you're only allowed to reach and go for your full potential, whether you reach it or not, it would make, it would, it would sort of eradicate so much um, hurt and, and, and unrest because people are, have such a sense of frustration when you don't reach your peak, when you don't push, not reach your peak, because we shouldn't reach your peak, when you reach for your peak. You know, it's all that reaching that creates, uh, you know, perfect perfectionism or perfectionists are not people that are perfect by any means. They're just people who are conscious that they could do better, that if they just push a little harder, they could, they could, the, 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 the rewards would be greater. Uh, just whatever they're trying to achieve it doesn't it's not financial it can be just spiritual in yourself the better job you do the better you feel uh and uh so no i think that's a perfectly healthy way to live i mean it's a you know it can be difficult sometimes you know because you sort of are your own worst uh critic and right. toughest critic but yeah appreciation gratitude they're fantastic and they they should be central to everyone but reaching also is a great thing i loved that when you took eight to 10 years off and you came back with the sea of memories, uh, the sound of winter went number one. And I'm not saying you have to say that you were throwing up a middle finger, but that had to feel good when you come back and you're like, we still got it, baby. Look at us. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was beautiful. And uh, who doesn't like a fairy tale return? So, you know, Liza Minnelli was a, a curious, it's a series of comebacks. So I don't know. It was good, good for that. And uh, number one's great. All right, Gavin, we'll let you go right now. You have a show tonight, but listen, man, I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. You have grown up right in front of our very eyes with so much music that we all love and will always love. You've also had to go through some S in front of a lot of people, and I know that's not easy. And you're always gracious and so nice to me and humble, but you're a rock star at the same time. I just, I really appreciate you, Gavin. So thank you. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thank you. That's another episode of Strikers Tuna on Toast. Promise it'll get better. Most likely. For sure. <laughs> Maybe.